I will start uh, explaining the progression of insight, but uh, I will continue that this evening because uh, there isn't enough time left to go through the whole thing. Now, I have explained to you the progression of calm and tranquility. And quite a number of you have now taken the first step for calm and tranquility. And uh, this is a very, very useful because this is a step-by-step progression. We don't have to wait till we have uh, the ability to go through all eight um, absorptions in order to gain insight. On the contrary, the more insight we gain on the way, the easier it is to get into the absorption. To have the first absorption even in very practiced and um, very um, regular availability is already a very strong help. So in the, from a practice standpoint, it is very useful as soon as one gets one's first absorption into shape, that it's no longer an accident, that one knows exactly how to get there, that one can sit with it, and uh, at the end see the impermanence of it. It is a good way to practice, to use, for instance, half an hour for that, and the next half hour for insight. Because as after the mind has become really calm and has been quite tranquil without discursive thinking, that's the time it has the ability to see straight. Before that, its ability to see clearly is vastly impaired. And this is why there is so little insight around. Because Minds are thinking and uh, hearing and uh, uh, feeling and reacting and uh, distracted and discursive. And with all that, the mind can't do it. But when we have now, as you have seen, there's an entry which you can use. Now you have to perfect that first. Um, Again, if... uh, you had a teacher around all the time, wouldn't have to tell you all these things, you could do it step by step. However, um, you know, as uh, Hal said, what about next week? So you'll have to do something next week also. So as you perfect the uh, basis of the tranquility, so gaining access to the first absorption, and then using that, let's say for half an hour, There are many other things we can do in a meditative uh, way to gain insight. Now, the first thing, of course, that already has been uh, been aware, uh, uh, has come to the awareness, is the fact that while the sensation that has arisen now at this time has generated from the physical It's only the mind that can know it. The same as with the breath. While the breath belongs to the body, 
It's only the mind that can know it. So we have to be, be and our first entry into insight is, there are two. That's the first entry. Second thing that we know through this meditation, through any meditation, is that with the arising of anything, it has to cease again. Now the arising of this pleasant feeling has come about, but it has to cease again. It can't stay around. It disappears again. Now, the same as a breath. But having had the first absorption means the mind is calm, mind is uh, properly directed, and it can uh, use this uh, strength in a more um, productive way. So now we have seen that this pleasant feeling has arisen, but it's gone. Now we can immediately go to the rest of ourselves. And that is a very important step. It's not just, oh, the feeling is gone, well, I'll have to sit again and get it back or something like that. It has arisen, and whatever has arisen must cease. So let's look inside of ourselves. Is there anything that has arisen that does not cease? And that doesn't mean that we now wait for the body to die in order to know that it has to cease. It's also not that we realize that the attention span which we have is sometimes there and sometimes not. These are also facts. And it's also not that just the feelings we have are now changed into other feelings. That's not all of it. What we now have to become aware of at this time, and the mind can do that, is that the arising and ceasing is constant and immediate in everything that we can even know. First instance, a body which has this uh, vibratory uh, aspect, the body which is constantly having the self uh, coming, coming together and falling apart, the body which is, in essence, nothing but elemental dust and the water element holding it together. Now, these must not be intellectual uh, understandings. They are. We know all that stuff. It's all very interesting, and uh, you can read books about it. But it doesn't help. With a mind really calm and really one-pointed, which it was during the first absorption, a mind can go inside and watch this movement in the body. There is constant movement in the body, not because it's moving from one place to another. Within, sitting quite still, there is constant movement. We can become aware of that. We can notice it. Well, this constant movement is, of course, the cause for the aging and dying process. This is obvious and logical, but we've got to become aware of it. And uh, with the mind, the same thing. The mind which even when it stays one-pointed, when it is totally connected with what it wants to pay attention to, it also has the aspect of a flickering movement. It is... Um, you know, electricity appears to be solid, but it also isn't. It has a constant movement in it. And uh, it's the same thing, exactly the same thing. 
And when the mind is very uh, calm and concentrated, it can notice that. The, the mind which is putting its attention on anything and staying with it, staying with that attention, has still that flickering movement like electricity. And this is what everything is like that. But we have to find it within ourselves. Only then does it really mean something. Because the minute we see that, we lose some of this idea of who am I? Some solid person that wants to stick around for a long time yet. But if it's only a flickering movement in body and mind, who wants to stick around? Who needs to be here? Whether there's a bit more of that flickering movement, a bit less, what difference could it possibly make? So this makes a lot of impact on the mind and it reduces one's um, um, feeling of um, being solid and being somebody special, particular, somebody particular, and uh, it reduces eventually the whole notion of being somebody. Because, I mean, who is this flickering movement? And that can be seen in the mind and in the body. Having seen that in mind and body, we then can go outside of ourselves. As we go outside of ourselves, we try to see it in whatever is available for our notice, whether that too has that aspect. Now, if we see a tree, it appears very solid. And if it's big and... uh, has a nice stem, it's a solid uh, entity there. But actually, what's, what's happening in that tree, the constantly, the sap is rising. If it isn't, the thing is going to topple over and be dead. So there's constant movement. And we can see also in the leaves, because there will be uh, life ones, uh, some that are withering and some that are dead. So from that already, we can understand that that same movement is going on in that body that's going in our, on in our body. Because that too has exactly the same aspect. We can see it in the, um, uh, when we look at the um, dust in the air when the sun shines on it. That's easy to see, all that movement. We can see it in the clouds, uh, in the water. It's also very easy to see there how it's not just a whole body of water, but there is uh, all, the whole thing has uh, this shimmering movement in it, every little bit of it. So as we notice it in ourselves and notice it in around us, our perception of what the world is like and what we are like changes drastically. And as it changes drastically, Because the mind has concentration and at least the first five factors of the meditative absorption, which includes happiness and pleasant feeling, it doesn't become uh, upset by that. On the contrary, it says, well, that's a relief. It's There's nothing that a shimmering movement has to achieve, is there? There's nothing that a shimmering movement has to become. It just is. And with that just being, 
a lot of this uh, striving and tension and uh, trying to uh, get something just disappears, it falls off. Insight must have results in one's life. Otherwise, it's an academic intellectual knowing. It doesn't have very um, profound results in one's own being. It hasn't worked. But we must also remember that the first time we see these things, although it makes a great impact on the mind, we will not immediately change our habitual reaction. And that's why when any insight arises through this investigation, which I have just pointed out, we have to resurrect that insight again and again and again. Daily, hourly, half-hourly, <laughs> as often as possible. When we have seen in ourselves this constant movement that does not um, contain any solidity, when we have seen it outside of ourselves, when we have seen it in mind and body, more than just the rising and ceasing of thought and feeling, but the constant electrical impacts which are happening, that has to be resurrected in one's mind, like a, a remembrance of, I know it is like that. And the more often we resurrect that within, the easier it is to carry on to the next step of insight. That resurrection is also necessary because that makes it possible to act accordingly. Having had that experience once, it will not be forgotten, but it can go to the back of one's mind where it no longer uh, influences our thought, speech, and action. We can just put it away somewhere, file it away, and say, oh yes, of course, and then carry on as usual. That's why it's very important to have that um, little bit of um, leisure for oneself, where one doesn't rush from one activity to the next, or rush from one uh, appointment to the next, one uh, duty to the next. One has a little bit of time where one can resurrect any experience that has had some uh, validity and some impact. Mind and body are two. Mind is in charge. Arising and ceasing, within and without. Not just those things that we know and that we can easily see, but the actual mind and matter, everything that we consist of. Now, these are possibly first two steps we can take when the mind has become really quiet, when we've had a half an hour of nothing but the concentration and one-pointedness and the, of the, on the, uh, pleasant feeling and the joy that arises with it, even without going any further on the meditative absorptions. Naturally, if we go further on the meditative absorptions, the mind gains more strength. That's obvious. It needs a lot of strength, for instance, for the fourth one. The fourth one, 
is the one where the mind really needs to be um, very one-pointed. But even the first one already does some very good work for us. So I were gonna le- I'm going to leave it at that for the moment and go on with it this evening. Um, in the progression of the transcendental dependent arising, the next step after the meditative absorptions is called knowledge and vision of things as they really are. Now the vision is the experience and the knowledge is the understanding. Now if you remember, we have had the different steps of the dependent arising. The first three are the prerequisites for the meditation, dukkha, faith and joy, and then the different steps of the absorption. Now having become calm, knowledge and vision of things as they really are can arise. But as I explained this morning, even if we don't have all of the absorptions, at least the first one makes the mind already calm enough to gain some deeper understanding. Calm is a prerequisite for depth. Without the calm mind, the depth of understanding cannot arise. So, now with the knowledge and vision of things as they really are, we also have methods. We can use several methods of getting a better insight. In other words, we don't have to wait till it arises accidentally. We don't have to uh, hope for it. We can use the methods that give us some understanding of how things really are. But because things really are entirely different from the way we think they are, we also need a mind which is entirely different from the way it usually is. That means a calm mind. A mind that isn't thinking, but experiencing. Because the vision is the experience. So as I explained already this morning, if we have, for instance, half an hour in our meditation where the mind really is absorbed in itself, it doesn't absorb anything from outside, it's absorbed in itself, and then use some methods for insight, we may have good results. One of the things that we need to look at is the fact that both mind and body have causes and conditions for arising. They do not arise without a cause or without a condition. Now with the body, we already have had the opportunity to look at the four great elements as a condition for a body to be there. If we use that for insight, we can use those four great elements which we can find within the body as our focus of attention. Earth, water, fire and air. Earth being the solid part, water 
all that which is um, has the quality of binding us together, but also saliva and uh, urine, blood and sweat. And within all that, we can see if we put our attention on that, that there is nothing that can be called a person. Fire is, of course, a, t- a temperature that we feel in the body. And uh, the air element or wind element is breath, but also movement and all the winds in the body. If we look at these four elements and know that the body consists of that, and if we look further, we won't find anything else as an underlying condition. We can not say that within those elements a person can be found. Inside is always connected, so either impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, or non-self, substancelessness, corelessness. Now the inquiry into causes and conditions makes it very apparent that we can't say that something has arisen which is called me. All we can say is that something that has arisen that we now call body. But even that is a concept. Because in reality, what we have are the four great elements and 32 parts of the body. And if we want to go further into this, we can, for instance, dissect ourselves into the 32 parts. A very useful exercise for insight. It's also a very useful exercise to diminish lust. If we, for instance, open up our skin, of course only mentally, and uh, take out all the parts that we can find in there, as many as we know, and put them right in front of us, and then take the skeleton out and put that on a little heap. Within all that, who's called me? Surely not the skin, and surely not any of those parts. And some of those parts are actually exchangeable these days. (laughs) That's, of course, a new twist. But even without that, if we have a look at that, there's nothing that is that has arisen there which can be called me. There's even nothing that can be called body. That is only a name for the whole collection of it. The Buddha compared that to a cart. In those days they didn't have motor cars, they had carts. He said, if we have a cart and 
we see that there's a wheel and there's spokes, there's an axle, there's a chassis, and uh, all these parts are now being put together. Then all of a sudden we call it carp. But none of these parts are called carp. It's only because we've put them together. So we make that conceptual uh, idea out of that. In reality, it's all bits and pieces. What's well, the same with us? It's all bits and pieces put together in a certain way, just like a carp is. And then, when we've got it all put together in that certain way, we not only call it body, which wouldn't be so bad, but we would call, we call it me. And me, for some reason, then becomes for us the most important aspect of anything that we could even envision. And of course, me has all these problems too. But in reality, nothing has arisen that we could act, we could see where that me is. So this is very useful to, um, for an analysis to gain a little different view of oneself. The Buddhist teaching is also often called a teaching of analysis. It means we take it, we take things apart. We don't look at it as one big whole thing because that gives us a wrong view. So if we can look at our body as having a cause and a condition and consisting of many parts. Then we will also have to inquire what was the cause for the arising of this, um, of these elements that now make up the body. And there is only one answer for that. And that too has to be found in oneself. We can see it quite clearly, but we don't like to admit it. It's the strongest craving we have, namely the craving to be here. And we can um, check that out, for instance, if we are on the freeway and uh, maybe we're standing in the middle of the freeway and a huge truck is coming at us. We can check out immediately that we've got craving to be. It's very simple. And we don't even have to go there. We can just envision that and know it already. So craving to be is one of the three cravings, craving for sensual gratification, and also when things don't go too wrong, craving not to be. But they're the same thing, it's just the other side of the same coin as craving to be. So that is the underlying cause for the conditions, the conditions being these elements, which are called the great elements, and not only do we consist of that, our body, all that is material, all that is not mind, consists of that. And we can check that out. If we believe it, it's useless to us. If we just uh, hear it and forget it again, it's useless to us. These are possibilities to gain insight if we actually examine what we can find in this body and examine it, of course, in a meditative or contemplative way where it isn't just an intellectual exercise. 
when it is an intellectual exercise, it's all very interesting, but it doesn't really have an impact. So our when we examine body, we find parts and we find elements. But we can't find me. Me is an idea. And then we can examine mind. Maybe we give up on body. We can examine mind. And there again, we will find causes and conditions. The cause for the thinking mind to arise are the sense contacts. And that needs to be checked out too. Now we have sense contacts with our five senses, but also with ideas, sixth sense. And as soon as any of these sense contacts hit us, the mind starts doing something. It starts, first of all, explaining it, giving it a name. And we hear a sound and we'll say, oh, that's an airplane. Then it will react to it. We'll say, I wish they wouldn't have their air routes right over my house or something like that, air lanes over my house. Or we would, or we think, uh, oh, I'm leaving next week. It's good that I have the tickets already or something like that. The mind will react to what it has heard. The hearing itself is only sound. There's nothing that the, the ear can understand about being an airplane or a truck or a bird or a, a dog or nothing like that. Ear has no idea about that. Ear hears sound. That's equipped for that. The eardrums equipped for hearing sound. But the mind starts acting up immediately on all sense contacts. And because everything goes so fast, we don't have any um, idea that this is happening. Only in the meditation can we get an inkling that this is how we are operating and that within that sense contact and this perception of it, and then the reaction to it through thinking, again, there's nobody there. It's an automatic process. There's nobody doing it. And yet, we always have the idea that it's me thinking. We're grasping at straws. We're trying to own that thought. But wouldn't it be awful, really, if we were to own all those thoughts? I mean, who wants to own all these thoughts that are coming up in meditation? And who wants to own all wants the thoughts that one has had all this lifetime already? Some of them are much better non-owned. So we're owning them because we have this concept of there must be a me sitting in here that's doing all that. We can't imagine that that is not so. Everybody is doing it. So how can everybody be wrong? But then... If we look at the history of mankind on this planet, most of the time things went wrong. And not just a little bit wrong, but terribly wrong. And we only have to look at maybe this century, how terribly wrong everything has gone over and over again. So there's no reason not to believe that we have a totally wrong concept of how things really are. 
it is, in fact, it is much more logical that we have a wrong concept. So the mind has as its condition and cause for arising our sense contacts. Now there's nothing that we are actually doing about it. As long as we have all these senses. Now for instance at this moment, the senses which are working is a touch contact, sitting, the sound contact, hearing, the eye contact, looking, and the thinking contact, the thought contact. It's also working, hopefully. So, what have all these contexts are working, there's no way we can't do it. It's uh, It would be foolishness to say, no, we don't want these contacts. But, with these contacts working, the mind is now engaged. It's so to say, actually, in in four gears. Now, they're not working simultaneously. It's always one or the other, although it appears to be simultaneously. But we can only know the one we're putting our attention on. If we put, for instance, our attention right now on the touch contact of sitting, that's what we'll know. If we put our attention on the sound contact and listen to the words, that's what we'll know. If we put a strong attention on the trying to grasp it or even maybe analyze it, what's being said, that's what we'll know. We won't know the touch contact anymore. So although it's all very, it seems to be all together, it's all working one at a time. And because it's all happening, the contacts are all happening, the mind is engaged. Without these sense contact happening, the mind's not engaged. And we can actually experience that in meditation. If we really become concentrated, if we really have the first or second or third, whatever stages of absorption, where the mind does not think, all sense contacts at that time are totally eliminated. And all that's happening is an inner experience. And as soon as the mind becomes really concentrated, there's nothing but peace. The mind does not have to think, but it arises because of our sense contacts. And the, these are the, this is the underlying cause for it to happen. So it doesn't have anybody that says to do this or that. Without the sense contact, the mind won't work. Without the concentration, the mind keeps on thinking. There is volition. The volition which is part of the mental formation, which is part of our, our thinking. But again, that's nothing but a thought. We might have the idea that this me is the one who is the director, directs things around. Now I'm going to do this and now I'm going to do that. But this director also appears to be, very often, to be in a very bad shape because directs in very um, un unprofitable directions. So this director needs to be educated, apparently. But if this is me, this director, then why doesn't it know that me is going to suffer 
from all these wrong directions it takes, like unhappiness and envy and all these, and anger and those things. Why doesn't this, why doesn't this, uh, whatever this director is supposed to be, know about it, that I'm going to suffer if he's doing all these bad things or he or she? So, some, there's some confusion there. And in reality, all that's happening is that these states are arising because of contact. Some contact has happened. Now, anger very often arises because some outer trigger has made one angry. But it can be an inner trigger. It can be a thought. It doesn't have to be an outer trigger. It can be something somebody said. But it can be also a thought. But without the thought, or without that somebody said something, or we see something, it can't arise. It hasn't got a chance to arise. If the mind is totally at ease, totally at peace, totally at rest, not doing a thing, how can it arise? So we'll have to, with that investigation, which can be done in the meditative state, best or contemplative state, we have to inquire, where is this person within all this that we are so concerned with? Who is doing all this? And then maybe we'll say, well, who's inquiring? Well, that's another mental formation. So again and again, we come back down to the same um, impasse if we don't see also this impulse, the impulses which are constantly at work and make everything totally unsubstantial, transparent. When we see that, again we can ask, who is within all that? So the <clears throat> arising and ceasing, which we have already seen, is then our support system for finding out about causes and conditions. Because all of that, these are facts, we can see them. These are laws of nature. We can see them. But because we have this enormous cra uh, clinging to person, we don't really want to know about it that well. When the mind has become very happy in meditation without outer conditions, then we are quite agreeable to, to accept such premises and see them within us as facts. So the first thing was mind and body are two. Second thing was, that we discussed this morning, second thing was the arising and ceasing, which is the electrical impulses which we can see in everything, mind and matter, mind and body. And the third thing is the uh, cause and condition for body and mind. Elements, parts, and sense contact. And that needs to be checked out for oneself. One has to watch oneself and see it. Now, in meditation, that is much easier than just like this. When we are actually concentrated, then we can become aware of that. Again, if we have an unpleasant feeling in, in our sitting posture, touch contact is the cause 
and the condition. The perception names it and says, pain. And the mind reacts and says, don't like it, must move. All that was happening was touch contact, unpleasant feeling, perception, naming it, and mind thinking about it, reacting to it. Nobody in there. It's just happening. If there was anybody there, why is that person so foolish to get an unpleasant feeling? If anybody was directing this business, then why doesn't that director make pleasant feelings come? Why unpleasant ones? That must be something wrong with the direction. But it isn't. There's nobody there directing it. These are sense contacts that happen. And some of the sense contacts are strong and some are mild. And that's a whole difference. But our reaction is, I hurt. It's uh, my blood circulation is being cut off. It's, uh, I can't sit like that. And that's the whole gamut of reaction. Which is a natural way of reacting. But our natural ways haven't brought us much peace and happiness. So this particular teaching is already called the transcendental dependarizing. We're trying to transcend that naturalness. Although it's so highly prized to be natural, it just doesn't really bring us what we're looking for. So we trans want to transcend that, which means through insight. So if we have that uh, as a base for investigation, the next thing we can do as investigation is to look at what are called the five khandas, the five aggregates. And the five aggregates are what the Buddha said, all that we consist of, nothing else. And uh, the investigation could be that we try to find if there's anything else. The first one is body. There's no question about that. That's there. And the other four are mind, feeling, perception, thoughts, and sense consciousness, sense contact. Those four. Just like I've just said, when we get an unpleasant feeling in the leg or in the knee or in the back. That's exactly what happens. Now, those four... The feeling, the perception, the mental formation, which is our thought process. Also the volition is in there. And our sense consciousness, the sense contact. Buddha said that's all there is. And because it doesn't sound very um, enticing to be just that, people would like to find something a little more um, elegant or esoteric within and uh, have all sorts of ideas like uh, higher self, soul, um, universal consciousness, all sorts of things that one is supposed to have inside. One doesn't actually, uh, usually doesn't um, really believe that one owns that, but one does believe that one is that. 
Well, one needs to investigate. Is one really that? What is one? Can one be that? How can one find it to be that? How can one find to be the higher self and discard the lower self? How, where is it? Where does it sit? How does it look? What does it feel like? Maybe it is when we have good thoughts or when our emotions are pure. Well, what about that when it doesn't happen, when our thoughts are not so good and our emotions are not so pure? Then the self has taken a holiday or something or it it belongs to somebody else at that time, which would be preferable. But the... um, We'll have to investigate that, to get rid of that illusion that there's actually something sitting inside which is so much more uh, valuable than feeling, perception, mental formation, and sense consciousness. But in a matter of fact, that's the most valuable thing there is, because that can be enlightened. We can put our finger on feeling. We all know feeling and sensation. There's no problem. We can put our finger on perception, naming something, perceiving it, no problem. We can put our finger on mental formations, on thinking and volition, no problem at all. And we could put, can put our finger on seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling. Very easy. But what about all that other stuff that we think we might be a hope of? That, to put our finger on that, That is what the Buddha said is the investigation. Find out if there's anything else. And if there's all there is, and if you do find out that this is all there is, all those those five, then within those five, where's me? Where does it sit? Now this is the investigating uh, procedure, and these are the guidelines that the Buddha gave. Now one can, of course oneself <clears throat> have many other ideas how to investigate. But if we want to get insight, which is the aim and the goal of meditation, calm is a means, insight the goal. If we want to get that, then we need to investigate in one of three directions. Impermanence, non-satisfactoriness, non-self. There are no other directions. Those three are the ones that will give us the insight. Now, of course, we can come from many different directions, and even those things which I've already mentioned are from many different directions. And they give one plenty to do. The elements, the analysis of the body, the sense contact and the rising of mind, and uh, the uh, five Aggregates. In English, they're translated as aggregates. Five, um, five parts that we consist of. Now, these investigations are best done after the mind has had a really calm meditation, has become really calm and collected, has had no thoughts, has been very peaceful and joyful, and then looking at that and not finding a me is an excellent result. One feels quite uh, 
at ease about it. But when the mind is grasping for straws in the world, trying to gain something there, the mind does not feel at ease about such a, an investigation. It doesn't really want to know about it. It says, but I am the one that want to be happy. So how can I then agree to that I'm not there? It's not possible when the mind is uh, churned up and desiring and uh, uh, reaching out. It has to be completely calm. And that's why the meditative state of calm is our um, means for using these several different ways of gaining insight. Now, we don't only have to do that in meditation. Naturally, we have to support this process, this meditative process also in daily life, if we want to gain an, an, under, an insight into how things really are. And that means that in daily life, we can actually check out what happens to us, whether it shows any permanency, whether it shows total fulfillment, and whether it has a core substance. These are the three characteristics. And the better the meditation is, the easier it is to use that as one's um, investigative uh, guideline, also in daily living. And if we remember to do that, whatever happens doesn't really have a sting. It's all impermanent. It's never fulfilling, and it doesn't ever have a core substance, because that what's impermanent can never have a core in it a core which is unchanging. So if we were to remember, and some people do remember, to check out whatever it may be, anything, experiences, situations, people, um, what we want, what we don't want, what we get, what we don't get, whatever it may be, against those three aspects, we will find that they always fit. There's nothing that doesn't fit into those three categories. All three. However, everybody usually has one that he prefers out of those three. One's perfectly uh, sufficient to check everything out against one of those three. Because all three are interwoven. That which is impermanent cannot be totally satisfactory, and that which is so impermanent cannot have an inner core to it, because everything is moving all the time. And because it doesn't have an inner core to it, it isn't satisfying, it is impermanent, and it concerns oneself. We can pick out any one of those three, impermanence, non-satisfactoriness, or substancelessness, non-self and check everything out against that. Now, non-self is not so easy to do. It is better to use the idea of corelessness, because uh, 
if we look at a tree, well, we never thought that a tree had a shell. So we have to check it out against the substance that remains. If we use that kind of investigation in our daily lives, it greatly supports the inside part. And if we do it in our meditation, it greatly supports easy living. That's really easy living. Not what we usually call easy living. This is easy living. The next thing that happens in the meditation when we put our attention on insight, namely, after having seen the rising and ceasing and the mind becomes more concentrated and there's a real, um, a real um, uh, one-pointedness in the mind, the arising is very often not seen anymore, but only the ceasing. And the it appears to be that everything is dissolving, which it is. But if we use that kind of approach without having had the uh, calm and peace in the meditation, that dissolving of our mind states, the dissolving of the breath, the dissolving of all feelings, can very often cause fear. Because that, what we have been putting our um, our trust in, our confidence in, that what we have been using as our base, seems to be disappearing and dissolving. And if the mind doesn't have the calm state to fall back on, doesn't have its inner happiness already established, it will fall into a fear state. That moment of fear is already is a quite a advanced insight is due to that the fear is due to that advanced insight and needs to be dealt with properly one has to be reassured at that time that one is seeing the truth and all one needs to do is keep seeing it and the fear will disappear because with that dissolving how everything disappears the breath has arisen, but it's also disappearing all the time. And the mind arises, but it's also disappearing all the time. With that, we also understand the danger of being in this existence. We are constantly in danger of disappearing. We never know how long we're going to be here. And not only are we in danger of disappearing, everything else is in danger of disappearing. Fear is a human condition. We like to change the outer conditions so that we have less fear. It doesn't matter whether there are atomic bombs or not. Everything disappears without them too. So the fear that we have has not arisen because of that. The fear has arisen because that which originally is born must disappear again. And as we see it all dissolving in the meditation, now that's only possible in the meditation, as we see this all dissolving, 
we can be aware of the danger of this craving to be. Because what are we? We're completely falling apart all the time. We're coming back together again, but we're again falling apart. And the continuity overshadows the impermanence. The uh, the change that we try to make overshadows the dukkha. And the solidity overshadows the corelessness. These are all optical illusions or mental illusions. Nothing is solid enough to not disappear. So when that fear arises, we need to see the danger. And as soon as we've seen the danger in being here, some vega arises, which is the urgency of practice. And only when that arises are we really on the path. Before that, it's all sort of um, dabbling. It's all right, better than nothing. But <laughs> we're not on the path. When the samvega, the urgency arises, then nothing can get us off that path. And nothing can get us to believe that there is a greater priority. Because we've seen the danger that we're in all the time. And that is what the Buddha called being like children playing in a burning house with our toys and not having sense enough to jump out, but hanging on to the toys. Up to this point of urgency of practice is this particular state which is called knowledge and vision of things as they really are. This is a, the, the, quite an advanced state of insight. And it has to come gradually. The Buddha's teaching was always gradual. He compared it <clears throat> to stepping into the ocean from the beach. If we step into the ocean first, we wet our feet. Then as we go further up to the knees and to the hips, then maybe up to the shoulders, and eventually we can be completely covered with the water. So it's a gradual understanding, a gradual path. The um, result, the benefits of it are not only at the end of it. The benefits come successively with each step. As the insight arises of the non-significance of all this what exists, because it's all coming and going and disappearing. All the tension, the achievement syndrome, the wantings become less. Everything becomes more, it just is, as it is. Only this isn't as it is. This still has ideas until enlightenment. And that's all. And with that comes a feeling of nothing else to be done. And as a feeling of nothing else to be done except the spiritual path, a great uh, energy and joy arises that this is possible.
It's not every person that in this world today or ever that has the opportunity to tread on a spiritual path which has a total involvement and has a total letting go of all dukkha. It's a rarity to have that opportunity. So the benefits which arise on the path are manifold because the mind becomes less and less engaged in worries, troubles, fears, anxieties, and likes and dislikes, and keeps its attention focused on the spiritual aspects which one is pursuing. If one is focused on anicca dukkha impermanence, non-fulfillment, and corelessness, one can't think about one's troubles at the same time. And so the, uh, the difference is one, there's no outer difference, but inside there's a vast difference because the mind has already started to turn away from the idea that it's going to get satisfaction from worldly uh, experiences, it's going to get satisfaction from uh, worldly uh, endeavors. It has already turned away from that. It knows already that too is impermanent and non-satisfactory and coalesced. And having turned away, it's turned itself in another direction. And so the world cannot hurt it very much anymore. The world is going to go on exactly the same as it always has. It doesn't care one bit what one does within oneself. But oneself can turn oneself in a different direction. Our consciousness, our awareness is all that we have to know what there is. It depends where we put it. If we put it into the world, well, obviously, that's where we're going to be engaged in. If we remember that there's something else happening, if we have seen already through our own investigation that the way the world looks at it, at, our, at, the, at a person and at things, isn't quite right, as something not quite in order, if we've already seen that, we will naturally turn away from that. So we have, as we have, a, as we tread this path, we will find much greater peace, which will improve the meditation, and as the meditation improves, we'll got, get much greater peace. They both work hand in hand. Our investigations into insight bring more peace. Our ability to calm the mind in meditation brings greater insight. They work hand in hand, and we need to establish both in ourselves, calm and insight, because it is the um, most satisfying way to practice. I'll give you some time to ask some questions if you like. Yes. The observation of the 
mindfulness. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yes. I'm not quite sure what you're asking, but uh, the uh, individuality of a person, the personality, doesn't uh, doesn't uh, disappear while the person is still alive. The uh, the uh, if a person becomes enlightened, the idea of me disappears. A person has certain characteristics and certain ways of acting that doesn't disappear. I don't know whether you were asking that, but uh, I heard that somehow or other. So what you were asking? I'm not right. sure. <laughs> I didn't say that. I said you should find out if there is. You find out yourself. I just put it up as a premise for everybody to do their own investigation. See if they have a soul. And if you find one, that's fine. I have nothing against it. <laughs> yes. I did, didn't I? Yeah, I did. I did. There's a, a quite a, a lengthy. I talked about it as um, a matter of the heart. Well, it's not exactly the same, but it certainly has that aspect. Um, one can only be devoted to someone or something that one loves. And, uh, but uh, loving kindness is a, pure, is a pure heart that loves. Devotion is something where one has an, more of an ideal in mind. You can't just be devoted to everyone bec- and, and because you love them. It's impossible. But uh, you can be devoted to an ideal. So it has love as its um, uh, ingredient, devotion. But it goes a little further than just loving kindness. And it's a very important aspect of the spiritual life, devotion. To know that one is devoted to the path, to the teaching, to one's own uh, spiritual growth makes it much easier to uh, to stay with it. It's a matter of the heart. Did I answer your question? Or do you have something else? Hmm?
No. Yes, but I did talk about it. Yeah, I did. It's a, it is the uh, aspect of uh, faith and confidence where devotion arises. And um, a prayer is something that is not, um, com- the word is not commonly used at all. I don't know that there is a Pali word for it, actually. Um, what there is are um, recitations. We have lots of recitations. They never request anything. Uh, Some of them are discourses of the Buddha that are recited. And some are um, devotional uh, recitations um, describing the qualities of Buddha Dhamma Sangha. And uh, the devotion in the heart is an enormous help for meditation. If it's if it's a really strong devotion, and uh, the the uh, assistance it gives for calm meditation, not for insight, but for calm, is quite remarkable. But it's something where we really have seen the ideal and love it. Huh? Yes. Well, I don't know about accomplish, but um, the idea of an of the, an arahant, an enlightened one, let's say like the Buddha, was that he had gained freedom. So his compassion for the world, for the other people who had not gained freedom, was sufficient so that he would teach them the way to also gain freedom. Now, whether that teaching was then uh, successful or not, that was no longer any uh, cause for thinking about it. He would teach the people to also gain freedom, liberation, but whether the other people would be able to do it or not, that's no longer any concern. So it's not an, a success uh, or an accomplishment, but to give one's best. And if one gives one's best, well, that's it. Yes, of course. Yes, yes, and everything. As long as it is not done for for just uh, selfish purposes, but for helping.
Yes. But then if the other person is helped or not helped, that is no longer the greatest concern if one knows one has done one's best. Because otherwise one is again dependent upon the result. No, a transcending nature. Transcending. Transcending that what we consider natural. Maybe, I don't know. I'm sorry, I wouldn't know exactly what I said. Maybe I said that. I don't know. The law of nature is entirely different from the way we think it is. So our nature, the way we are, is something that we need to transcend. Because the law of nature is not that what we think it is. The law of nature is completely, everything is impermanent. Mm-hmm. Sorry? How does it come about? Yes. Yes, because people have all the same problems and all the same capacities. And if we don't know what's going on inside of ourselves, we'll never know what's going on in somebody else. The Buddha said not just that we know other people, we know the whole universe. The whole of the universe, O monks, lies in this mind and body. We know what's going on in there, then we know everything. I mean, completely. And if we know ourselves fairly well, we can infer from that what goes on with other people. Particularly if we know our own dukkha very helpful. <laughs> we know everybody's dukkha, yes. <laughs> oh, very useful, very. <laughs> mm-hmm. Ah, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. Yes. Quite so. Um, well, this actually, this terror, it is called terror. That is one of the steps on this way. I wasn't using the word because I didn't want to scare people, but it is called terror. <laughs> well, you see, the, the counter, uh, um, 
action for that is to do the meditative absorptions. Because when the meditative absorptions are uh, uh, there to fall back upon, then you have a base. You have a base of peace, of happiness, of joy. These bases are there. They are not dependent upon anyone. Nobody needs to be there. They're totally independent. They are your, your thing, which you can get at. And as you can get at that, you realize also the purity which is involved in that. And when we then see this disillusion of dissolving of everything, it is no longer a threat. On the contrary, it's a release. And as you go and as, when you've seen it, you still function in the world probably no different from before, outwardly. But inwardly, there is no longer that really strong um, impact when people say something, people do something. When you say something, you do something. It doesn't have that strong impact. It's just happening. And it keeps on happening. And it keeps on disappearing again. But you've got your own base. You have your own base of peace and happiness. And that's why it is so much more preferable to go through calm to insight than trying to gain these insight stages without that as a base. Because this is exactly the point, the one you're making, where people turn away from it. It's just too difficult to go on from there. That is the, that is the point where when we get that far, we turn around and say, nah, that's a bit much. And even get terror, get terrified. And it's actually called that in the, in the, yeah, in the, in the progression of insight. That's its name, terror. And that's when you need a teacher at that moment, of course. But you'll never get the terror if you've done the meditative absorption. Never. It cannot happen because the mind, which is peaceful and happy, cannot be terrorized. It's just not possible. Because that what you see then is just another, well, that's what it is. It is. Right. Okay. So you can sort of take it in your stride then. Right. And the least you need is if even if, well, yes, at least the first and second absorptions, which are really not difficult. Um, someone at the time when that terrorizes to explain it. That too is a help. But it doesn't, it's not the same, uh, real help that the absorptions are. Yes. Does that, uh, uh, yes, and then is it, is it difficult then to get to the absorption? No. Well, the issue at that time is usually that one doesn't want to go on with it. One doesn't want to go on meditating, one doesn't want to go on getting any insight. One is torn. One actually wants to, but one actually doesn't want to. One is not quite sure. Yes, <laughs> that would be one one way. 
and the other way is to eventually one finds out about these things. It doesn't always happen immediately, but eventually one does find out. Eventually one does find out how this all fits together. But uh, this is uh, something that does happen. Did that happen to you, Judy? Yeah. That one. Yeah, that's right. That's very common. I actually want to practice, but I don't really want to practice because it's really it's really too much for me. But I don't. I know that I really want to practice. A very unpleasant state to be in. <laughs> yes. No, no, no. The experience itself is terrorizing. If you have nothing else to base yourself on, the experience is is is, uh, is one of terror. Because everything is falling apart that you've ever thought that was your your life. That what you have been basing your uh, reliance on, you can see it falling apart. And uh, so, the best thing to do at this stage is to practice nothing but calm. Not go to, because you have already gained that, that step to insight. And the calm is lacking behind. So it's, uh, uh, lagging, uh, you know, sort of in the background. That needs to be practiced now. Nothing but calm. Never mind all these insights. <laughs> well, one has to balance it. It's a path of balance. Has to balance. One has to balance both. So if somebody becomes very, very calm, and isn't paying any attention to impermanence, that's when they have to be nudged and say, come on, look at what's really happening here. You know. But if somebody has gone as far as, as that, as you have, and no calm meditation, that's important now. Balance has to be there. And then it will be all right. There's nothing to worry about. Anything else? Yes. Yeah, I know that. You told me that last time when I saw you. <laughs> you told me about the problem with attachment. Have you done anything about it? <laughs> well, I cannot tell you anything more than except letting go. <laughs> what else can one do with attachment? <laughs> see them as impermanent. See everything as impermanent and try to let go. But you need meditation practice for that. Just talking about it like that is not going to help. One has to have the meditation practice where one can see the impermanence in oneself. And if one sees the impermanence in oneself, one can infer with that, from that with absolute certainty that uh, everything else is also impermanent. But the meditation is essential for that. So talking about it doesn't really give any you know, benefit. Please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Think of all the good things that you have done in this life. Helping others, 
giving presence, meditating, trying to grow, whatever it may be. Think of any of the good things that have that you have actually initiated at any time. And then feel this appreciation and warmth for yourself. What comes from right effort. can realize that your own goodness has produced good results. Let that feeling of contentment that comes from that fill you and the joy about it surround you. Now appreciate the person that is sitting nearest you here. The effort that the person is making. Fill him or her with contentment. Surround him or her with your joy. Let this appreciation for his or her effort bring the warmth of your heart that person. Now let appreciation arise in you for everyone here. For everyone's effort, for all the good things everyone has done in this life. Let the warmth of your heart reach out to each person with that appreciation. Let the contentment from your heart reach out to everyone.
think of your parents. Appreciate all the good things they've ever done. Reach out with your heart to them to let them know of your love and appreciation of them. Think of those people who are nearest and dearest to you. Appreciate all the good things that you know about them. Let them know about the warmth and love from your heart and your appreciation. Think about your friends. Think about all the good things you know about them. Appreciate them for that. Reach out with warmth and contentment and joy to them so that they know of the goodness that they have generated. 